0: This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your solo co-host this week, Ethan Frisch. And my guest is a a new member of the Heritage Radio Network family with a a brand new show launching very soon. Uh, Peter Reinhart is chef on assignment at Johnson & Wales University in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the author of many books and an all round expert on all things baking and pizza. Peter, thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Likewise. Uh let's let's start with uh, with your new Heritage Radio Network show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that story? How did you uh, how did you come to start the show and when I guess we don't know exactly when it'll be available, but but um yeah, any, yeah, day, any was, day now, I'm told. Any day now, right, right, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, stay stay tuned for alerts. But um yeah,
2: this this uh, series is a a spin of an interview series I've been doing on my own website called pizzaquest.com. Uh, which has, for years, has been sort of chronic- chronicling my my never-ending search for the perfect pizza. And we've been doing it with videos and with interviews and with uh, recipes and all sorts of, you know, ways of tracking this sort of journey. I, I call it a journey of self-discovery through pizza. And uh, for the first number of years, we built it mainly around videos that my team made, we went out on the road and, you know, interviewed some of the great pizza makers in, in America and, uh, again, tried to dig in a little bit to, into their gut to find out what it is that burns in their belly that drives them to the level of greatness that they've achieved to uh, kind of break from the pack, from the standard everyday pizza guys to the people who are the go-to pizza makers. And we also follow folks that are artisans, so it's not just pizza makers, but anyone in the artisan community that's doing something extraordinary at that highest level. So that sort of spun off last year when we went into this year of the COVID, um, we couldn't go on the road in film. So I decided to follow up by doing Zoom interviews with a lot of the people that we haven't been able to get to with our cameras. And we would do like 45 minute to 60 minute interviews uh, with dozens and dozens of these pizza luminaries. And uh, after a while, we had quite a few in the can. We ran them as uh, video shows. And uh, started talking with Heritage Radio about repurposing these uh, into audio podcasts, and because they were very, very verbal. A lot, of, you know, it they, they wasn't so much about making the pieces. There wasn't a lot of demos, uh, although we do have some of those. But it was really about, you know, the stories, the stories of these of these artisans. And so we found that they played well as podcasts. So we we've re edited them and prepared to uh, to launch the first season of some of. We're going to start with fifteen of the best. Of the interviews, and uh,
1: if everyone likes them, we've got more in the can, and we're continuing to make new ones uh, every week. That's that's really exciting. I mean, it sounds like a, a delicious and fascinating series of conversations. Can I can I ask kind of an inappropriate question? <laughs> uh, is is there such a thing as the perfect pizza? <laughs> well, it's funny
2: because you know uh, some of the, the one of the great pizza makers we interviewed was a guy named Chris Bianco, who a lot of people know as sort of the poster boy of the Artisan pizza movement. A piece pizzeria in Phoenix, Arizona, kind of raised the par bar of what a pizza could be. And when I asked him that, you know, has he ever made a perfect pizza? You know, his answer was making the perfect pizza is kind of like hitting the perfect golf shot. It's it's there, but it's always just out of reach. And if you do one and you think it's the best you ever made, then you have to the very next day try to try to top yourself. So it's sort of this. It's kind of one of those things that you reach for it, and as soon as you touch it, it kind of disappears in your in your midst. But but my idea of what a perfect pizza is, uh, and I kind of defined this in one of my earlier books called American Pie: My Search for the Perfect Pizza. Is is uh, I kind of had to to zero in on what do I mean by great or what what because I, I really want to talk about what distinguishes good from great, and so what is great? And I decided that in, when it comes to pizza, what what determines greatness is, is it memorable? That's the question asked, is it so memorable that you can't get it out of your head, that it is embedded itself in your taste memory hall of fame and you can't wait to bring your friends there, your family there, uh, You you just can't wait to get back to that place. And there's only a few places in any category, whether it's, you know, pizza or food in general or life uh, and things that are important to us that kind of reaches that pinnacle. And so that's sort of what I'm striving for. And then the question is, okay, so what makes it great? What what causes it to break from the pack? What are they doing that the other people that are using uh, flour, water, salt, yeast, and cheese, and sauce, What they're all using the same ingredients. How come some do it better than others? And that's
1: that's the exploration that we're on. And I guess pizza is, is sort of, I mean, as you just mentioned, kind of a deceptively simple uh, process and subject. So, I mean, what are some of the differences that, that can be expressed in just changing that handful of ingredients?
2: Yeah, you're, and that's the key. And and so in breaking it down, and you kind of have to kind of walk it back, the first thing that I you know I kind of come up with a few axioms, and one of them is, is that a great pizza always starts with a great crust. You can't have a memorable pizza without a fabulous or memorable crust. Uh, in fact, some of the people that I've interviewed say that for them – a pizza is eighty to ninety percent about the crust, and only ten to twenty percent about the toppings. And of course, that's a debatable, you know, topic that you could, you know, get around a cup of espresso and talk about all night. But uh, universally, I'd say most people agree that it really begins with the crust. And as a bread guy, because most of my books are really about bread making, you know that that rings true for me. I've always felt that about pizza. When I've had a pizza, that that, for instance, we we'll use the uh, Pizzeria Bianco pizza as a, again the example, since he's started this whole this whole sort of national craze about artisan pizza um, the first time you take a bite of that pizza there's something that happens uh, there's a, a a a sound that the crust makes there's a, almost like a, a crackle factor the the undercrust has the snap uh, it, and a shattering effect the the edge of the pizza the cornicione when you bite into it it, it it's both it's both firm but yet creamy And almost like the best ciabatta bread that you've ever had. And so all these factors come together. And then when you have really good ingredients on top, uh, and we'll just say even just tomato sauce, because marinara pizza is just sauce, that's all you need. In fact, you could just have olive oil on top. It's already so satisfying that you can't wait to take another bite or to come back again and have it over and over again. So that's the key. So so then diving deeper into that, it's how do you make a crust? that good? What is it that 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 differentiates between the everyday pizza, which is, and again, all pizza is good. That's another rule of the game is that there are only two kinds of pizza. There's good and there's very good. And by very good, I mean memorable. And, and so if 98% of the pizzas are good and 2% of the pizzas are very good and memorable, uh, you know, what is it that they're doing differently? And then we're finding, of course, that since I kind of came up with that corollary, um that uh, a lot more pizzerias are, are been they've been learning from each other and they've been adapting and adopting these these principles of great bread making, great dough making, and so now it's not just two percent, it may be ten percent you know the the number of great memorable pizzerias is growing exponentially over the last few years, and a very large community of uh, sort of the pizza making community has expanded, and everybody's very generously sharing with each other their tricks and and tips, very few people kind of hide their secret methods and on the on the show you know they all share some of their particular tips but chris bianco again when i asked him for some of his tips his answer was quite interesting he said i could share my tips and tricks and every pizza maker has them with others but i think it would be a disservice he said as if to say that these tips and tricks are what make a great pizza he said that's not what makes my pizzas great and he, of course, he'll argue with him because he's, he's a, a very humble guy. He'll argue and say, my, I'm not saying my pizzas are the best. But what makes my pizza so good is not the fact that uh, I make the dough by hand. I, I even pull my own cheese and I have the tomatoes grown, especially for me. And he lists all these things that he does that already are difference makers. But he said, but that's not what, what makes him so special. He says, what makes him so special is that I'm the one who's making them. And that was one of the things we found at the heart and soul of of this journey is that at every place where there was a memorable pizza, there was a person who cared. Because Chris Chris's final comment was, I can teach people my tips, my tricks, but I can't teach them to care as much as I care. And that's what we really found is that it takes a person who cares and really wants their their work, their this being their artistic expression, to to really be great and to connect and to And to essentially, you know, when I asked him what his his goal is when he feeds somebody, you know, his pizzas, what what does he want them to experience? His answer was, I want them to experience my soul. And that was about the most profound thing I'd ever heard, whether from a pizza maker or anyone. Uh, and, And it rang true for me. And I think that's what drives the great artisans, is that they want people to you know, to experience a little bit of their own soul when they experience the products that they make. And that's what opened up this whole, I mean, this was over, this was 15, 20 years ago when I interviewed Chris the first time. And it spun off into this 10-year project called Pizza Quest. And there's never-ending array of of new great players in the game who we keep talking to and interviewing that,
1: uh, in their own way, uh, say things that are very similar to what Chris discovered in his own journey. Do you do you find that that aesthetic or that uh, philosophy has changed over the over the couple of decades that you've been studying pizza and pizza makers? I think that it's it's always been there at its heart and soul. You know,
2: like, for instance, if you were to go to some of the great uh, Naples pizzerias and that are still part of a family tradition, you'll see that that sense of occurring. If you go to a place like Frank Pepe's in uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, one of the great American pizzerias for the last 90 years. Uh, there's still uh, there are still people there that are part of the original family that drive this sense of it's almost like a sense of mission that they have that they want their pizzas to be so deeply satisfying for people that they just care and they hire people even though they can't do them all themselves like Chris Bianca was doing they can they hire people who are driven uh, and buy into that same drive that they have to deliver a memorable product so this that aspect has grown because 90%, like I said, 99% of the pizzerias are just pizza places. It doesn't take great craft and skill to make a pizza. Anybody can learn how to make it. You can hire a high school kid to do it. Um, but to take it to that next level, uh, it does, it does take a sense of caring and you kind of almost have to take it personal. You know, that when you're making something, you're creating an expression, um, out of your own soul, even if it's a simple thing as a uh, and we saw it first happen in the bread baking community when the artisan bread community kind of exploded on the scene in the 1990s it was driven by that same kind of ethic uh, a lot of people who stumbled into bread making like myself where, you know we're not trained at bread baking academies like they are in France but who just fell in love with the process began to learn from the bread masters that many of whom we brought over from Europe to teach us their techniques and the method and the science but uh, there, we had we had adopted those principles uh, with a kind of a zeal and a drive that even impressed the French. It even impressed, you know, the Europeans who've been making bread for hundreds of years um, because they they saw a kind of a renewed zeal here that then inspired even a renaissance in France in their own bread making, where they'd gotten kind of a little bit, uh, I hate to use the word stale, but, you know, they'd gotten a little stale and taken for granted their craft. Uh, so there's, there was a big rejuvenation and I'll call it a renaissance of bread making in the 90s and the uh, first part of this, uh, you know, the 2000s that exploded out there. And then that carried over into the pizza community. And there's a great, great sort of overlap now in the bread baking community and the pizza community. And now a lot of pizzerias are making their own bread. And a lot of bakeries are making their own pizzas because really, you know, pizza is just dough with something on it. So they're really just, you know, spinoffs of each other. And uh, it's nice to see that, that again, all of this sharing of knowledge and application of that
1: knowledge is taking place. And I, I guess while we're on this topic, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about your origin story? How did you get into bread and, and into food in general? And, and uh, what were you doing before?
2: Yeah. Well, when I was in college, I was a, a film and broadcasting major at Boston university. And I, you know, really had a dream to be able to write. I wanted to write direct films and, uh, and it was, you know, I was having a good experience and I felt like I had the talent to do it. But at somewhere during the college years, of course, you go through, everyone goes through kind of an identity crisis of like, what am I doing here? And, uh, you know, what am, I, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And I realized that even though I may have the, some of the skills to be able to make films, I really didn't know what I had to say. I didn't know who I was, you know, what my sense of purpose in life was and what, my, what I was going to be writing about. And so I decided to step away from it for a while and kind of go on a, what I call a journey of self-discovery. And I, you know, like a lot of people back, and this is, we're talking about like 1969, 1970, uh, the Woodstock era. You know, I went on a a spiritual quest and I started studying uh, religions of the world. I started meditating, I did yoga, I did, I started looking everywhere for, to the people who might have the answers to what is the purpose and meaning of life. And it led me on a very interesting journey, and, and uh, the first thing that uh, I kind of stumbled into was a group of people who were like myself, I'll call them sort of seekers, um, who were also looking for, for what they were supposed to do next. And we all had a common interest that we liked food, and, we, and uh, a couple of people had the talent of being able to cook. So we opened a vegetarian organic restaurant in 1971 in Boston— called Root One Cafe. It was spelled R-O-O-T, Root One Cafe, uh, right on the, the bridge connecting Boston and Cambridge. And um, uh, and for the next three years, I learned and taught myself how to cook and uh, got into food and got into a little bit, of, little bit of bread making, mostly making things like banana breads. I really didn't know much about bread making, but we bought our bread from another kind of hippie group that was doing uh, natural sourdough whole grain breads uh, so we bought our breads from them and I would watch them sometimes make their breads. And I got a little bit of, of a fascination for that. And then a few years later, my own journey kind of uh, moved on and I was looking for the next step for me. And I ended up uh, taking a turn that I wasn't expecting. I I found myself drawn to a uh, a group of Christians who were expressing their Christianity in a way unlike anything i had ever heard before. It was not evangelical. It was not conventional. It was kind of a blend of Eastern and Western religion. And it was a group called the Holy Order of Man's, M-A-N-S. And that M-A-N-S is an acronym for four Greek words that represent the strivings of, of the members. And, um, and I studied with them. I went to some of their classes. I found it really fascinating. It was kind of getting close to scratching the itch that I had about, you know, who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing. And after about a year or so of just kind of hanging on the edges of that, I just decided to go all in, and I ended up joining that community. And from 1974 on, I became known as Brother Peter, in an order that was looked from on the outside kind of like a, like a Jesuit, uh, you know, uh, Catholic group, but it wasn't Catholic. It was actually a non-denominational, a non-sectarian. It wasn't affiliated with any church, but we we had the garb of the of the clergy because we went. And did a lot of service work. the The model of the organization was service. That the fastest way to know God and to find your own purpose was to serve the God and other people. And that drew me. That spoke to me. And so I I I joined and, and intended at that point to, essentially, you know, dedicate my life to this work of service, uh, not knowing where it would lead. My My father asked me, "What about your ambitions to you know write and make movies and things?" And I said, That I'm just going to have to." Put it on the shelf for now. If it's meant to be, it'll come around at some time. But I, I, right now, I have to let go of that because I have to do what's right in front of me. And what's speaking to me right now is to is to follow these this this path.
1: And um, and did you was there a, sort of an explicit connection between cooking or, or baking and the spiritual? Well, that's where it gets interesting because
2: and- because I did have uh, because of my background at the restaurant for the last three years, where I become a pretty good cook. Uh, They always in in seminaries, they always need cooks, you know. So I very often found myself in the kitchen itself. Now, uh, the connections themselves sort of between food and spirituality, uh, that sort of is up to each person to kind of articulate. And I have had a chance to do that later on. But but first I was they were able to use my skills, you know, in-house and uh, at the various study houses and seminaries where we would do training. uh, I would find myself often in the kitchen. Sometimes as the full-time, you know, cook where I'd be feeding 30 other seminarians every day uh, and other times where I would be on other projects, but I would, you know, when they needed somebody to step in on a weekend or something, I would love – always end up in the kitchen. I loved cooking and I found myself loving it. And I ended up in San Francisco uh, where our headquarters was uh, at the main seminary. And while I was there, of course, San Francisco – and now we're talking about uh, sometime around 1978, 1980 – Um, I was in the bread center of the United States. San Francisco at that point was the one place where you could count on getting good bread. And we all fell in love with the sourdough breads of San Francisco. And eventually a friend of mine, uh, who was also a a member of our community uh, and liked baking bread, made some French bread following the experience the specific directions of Julia Child in one of her books, like six pages of hard to follow directions. And he followed it and made some baguettes that blew everybody's minds. It was kind of like that moment of, you know, that we were talking about the difference between good and great. There's bread. And then there was this bread. And this bread was like a a conversation stopping bite of bread. And, and so I asked him how he did it. He told me where he had got the recipe. He said, if you're going to make it, just follow her instructions. You know, exactly. So I did. And I was I was the cook at the seminary. And so one night I made this French bread for 30, 35 people and put it out on the table that night. And after the dinner, everybody from from the dining room came into the kitchen and they said, how did you make that bread? You've got to make it every night. That was the best bread we ever had. And so all of a sudden I was like, you know, I was hooked. And uh, the next night I made it again, only being a rookie. I made a big mistake, I over-proofed the bread, I over-fermented it, and the bread rose too much, and by the time I went to put it in the oven, it had collapsed, it had fallen. And so what am I going to do? It's almost dinner time. I went ahead and scored it, I cut, put the cut marks in it, I put it in the oven, baked it anyway, came out with all these wrinkles on top and everything else, it was the ugliest bread you ever saw, but I sliced it up, put it in the bread baskets, and nobody could tell that it, it, was, it wasn't supposed to be that way because that it was sliced. And after dinner, they came back in the kitchen and they said tonight's bread was even better than last night's. And I went, ah, okay, here's here's my first uh, principle of bread making, is bread is always a hit, no matter how it turns out, if it's fresh. And so from that point on, I was just sort of hooked on bread making. And over the years, I, you know, as I got deeper into my own studies and moved up to uh, uh, one of our other headquarters where we have a retreat center, I started doing other projects, a lot of them built around food because I still loved food. Uh, eventually, I developed a bread, a multi-grain bread called struin, which was a, bre- a harvest bread associated with the Michael Mass uh, uh, Harvest Festival. And uh, that, it, it took me a few years to kind of perfect it. But when I did, by the time I did, I got married. I, I found my wife and, and she was a, a, a member of the community as well. She also liked to cook. We opened a, a little cafe together uh, called Brother Juniper's Cafe in Forestville, California, in Sonoma County. And um, the whole purpose of that place was to just provide jobs for local high school kids and things like that. But we decided we would make our own bread because by then I was making a lot of bread. And we built the restaurant around the breads that I had kind of developed, including the struin bread, uh, as well as some other things that both of us liked to make, like you know, like barbecues and chilies and gumbos and soups and salads. And it was a great little homemade little cafe that that suddenly became very popular and by the time we got discovered, uh, a New York Times article came out. Some reporter coming through wrote about us, and suddenly we were kind of national news. And the breads took off. Local other restaurant tours asked if we could make extra bread for them. And before I knew it, I had this bread business on, on the side of this little cafe business that we had. And so we decided to open a bakery. And eventually the bakery kind of eclipsed the restaurant, And I, and that's when I decided to write a book about it. So it finally came full circle. Uh, I finally knew what I was going to write about, and the idea of the first book was called we, "The Bakery" was called Brother Juniper's uh, Bakery, so we called it Brother Juniper's Br- Brother Juniper's um, uh, Bread Book: Slow Rise as Method and Metaphor, because what I had, you know, kind of stumbled into, was this idea, this notion that bread that rises slowly, is better than bread that rises fast. And the whole book was ra- built around that one little conceit, that one little metaphor. That slow is better than fast. And this came book came out in nineteen ninety one, and now uh, I'm about to release at the end of this year my my fourteenth book. So since then, so my writing, you know, I got back on track with my writing, and before you know, you know, a few years later, we're doing we're doing Pizza Quest and on the road making videos and films about pizza, and somehow all that that early stuff with uh, you know with filmmaking and, and broadcasting and and writing. Uh, paid off and uh, had something to write about. And uh, this metaphor yeah. has been kind of like driving my my creative career ever since. Later on, our, our community actually eventually um, restructured itself. And um, we broke into a monastic branch and a householder branch. <clears throat> Those of us who were married, uh, you know, went off and kind of lived independently from each other and the ones who were monastics, we built monasteries for them. And my wife and I went off and we've been living independently. I dropped the honorific brother uh, a good 20 years ago and I've just been Peter ever since.
1: What a what a journey. Um, on, on that note, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Stay with us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese. Forever Cheese has been a pioneer in the specialty food industry for over 20 years. They source the most exceptional, authentic, and creative artisan cheese and accompaniments from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. Every product they carry is thoughtfully hand-selected from their trusted producers in Europe. The standards of Forever Cheese are legendary. Many of their products, including Drunken Goat, Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mitica Marcona Almonds, and Fig and Date Cakes, are now integral to today's market. You can learn more about their product lineup at forevercheese.com. Forever Cheese is proud of their role as a trusted authority in the specialty cheese world. Their philosophy is to put passion behind everything they do, from finding the best products to celebrating those who make them. Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Thanks to Forever Cheese for supporting this episode. Learn more at forevercheese.com.
1: And we're back. My guest this week is Peter Reinhardt, host of the brand new Heritage Radio Network show Pizza Quest, author, writer, teacher, uh, baker, of course. Um, and Peter, I wanted to to ask about some of the upcoming projects that you're working on. You have a, a symposium coming up. Um, you have a new book in the works. Uh, tell us tell us about the symposium. What's what's happening, yeah. and uh, what makes it special? Well, this has been a, uh, sort of a passion project of mine now for the last four or five years. Uh,
2: I, uh, As part of my journey unfolded, I ended up, uh, after we, we built the bakery, I, we sold the bakery at that point because I realized that I didn't feel uh, my mission was to, to run a business. I just didn't enjoy the business side of it. I enjoyed the baking side of it. And I, and I always had a, a passion for teaching. So I decided to sell and become a Uh, a teacher. And I ended up getting a great job at the California Culinary Academy as a bread instructor for five years. And that led me to a a, a similar position at Johnson and Wales University, uh, which is the largest culinary school in the world, uh, with its first main main branches in Providence, Rhode Island. But while we we were there, um, the university announced they were opening a few other campuses, one of which was in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I had done some missionary work during that early seminary period and I love North Carolina my wife's family lived in the Carolinas so we decided to uh, petition to join be part of the opening staff there and I've been and I got the job and I came down here helped open the Charlotte campus of Johnson Wales, and I've been here for 18 years um, and um, as a result the bread department that we had both in Providence and in Charlotte where we had drawn a number of great bread instructors, and many of them got published. I had, you know, written a number of books. My my book, Bread Baker's Apprentice, won, you know, Book of the Year, and some of the other bakers uh, did their own books that were equally great. And I realized we were sitting on, as, as basically the most uh, honored and decorated teaching staff of bread making in the United States. And I thought, why don't we just build an event around the fact that we we want to really own the bread space and create a venue in which the future of bread could be explored, because let's face it, bread has been under attack now for quite a number of years, and every couple of years it has to defend itself again against the low-carb people and the no-carb people and the gluten-free and all this. And and yet, despite that fact, bread is still the most beloved of all foods. And so I it took me a couple of years to convince the uh, you know the powers that be to kind of give me the green light to do it, but we decided to put together an event that we called the International Symposium on Bread, which I invited uh, the first year uh, 10 uh, important speakers to come and make presentations uh, all around the question of the future of bread, whether it's in the microbiology side of it, the technology side of it, the history and the art. And we, we, we looked at it from all angles. And so the first year was a success. We did it again the second year. Third year, we created a, uh, uh, a hands-on workshop to actually make products uh, uh, based on the outcomes of the findings that were presented during the first couple of years, and we were scheduled last year to do a fourth one, and of course, COVID hit, so we had to put it on on hold, and during that time, I came up with the idea of, uh, and by then, I got you know comfortable with the idea of Zoom, and so we thought, let's create a virtual version of the symposium that where we can invite more people, and they don't have to get in an airplane, and they don't have to get a hotel room, and we can all just kind of gather in a virtual space, and so uh, Monday, uh, May 17th, we launch. Uh, and we've been putting this together for the last nine months and expanded from being these original 10 speakers. I now have something like 46 presentations scheduled every Monday and every Wednesday for 24 consecutive weeks. We have a presentation, either, you know, uh, a formal presentation, kind of like a TED Talk uh, that, again, explores the future of bread from many different angles. Uh, and, um, And then on Wednesdays, we have more of a demonstration presentation where a very well-known bread baker or baker or craftsperson will come and do a demo show, showing things that are not the kind of uh, products that necessarily you've seen in demos anywhere else. And so the ticket holders get to go to all those. Uh, their virtual ticket can get them into you know, a- any presentation. And if they miss a presentation, we're going to record them. They'll be able to you know, call them up on demand and watch them anytime till the end of the year. And this, so the to starts May 17th. is going to go to October 25th. And, um, you know, by the, after I put it all together, I went, oh, my God, what have I got myself into? I can't go anywhere now for the next six months because I have to host each one of these, <laughs> these uh, gatherings. But um, uh, on, on May 17th, we launch. We're going to uh, open with a documentary film made by somebody who had presented a couple of years ago uh, called Bread in the Bones. And it's really a, a, a film that celebrates the importance of bread in, in culture and in just, you know, in life and in, in, our, in our hearts. Um, And it's very nicely done. I'm one of the few people that's actually seen it and uh, everybody else will get to see it on, uh, on Monday, the 17th. And that's our kickoff. And the following week, we're going to have Apollonia Poilan, the daughter of the most famous bread baker in the world, Lionel Poilan, who was tragically killed 20 years ago. Uh, And, and Apollonia had to take over the bakery while she was just starting her studies at Harvard, um, and she had to go back and forth over the pond for the next four years while she finished her, her Harvard work and s- kept the bakery going. She and her sister kept it going. Now, 20 years later, she is you know, at the helm of the world's most iconic bakery. So she's going to tell us her story and, in and, and in, a sense, share what they call the Poilón vision of bread. So we've got lots of people like that. I, I, I won't give all the people who are coming because we'll take too long, but if anybody's interested in seeing the whole roster of speakers, all they have to do is go to our homepage, which is uh, one word breadsymposium.com. Breadsymposium.com. And you can see the whole schedule and and uh, tickets are cheap and and uh, you know we there's still still time to get in on it. Even after it starts if you miss the first couple you can still watch them all because they'll be all yeah. recorded. So yeah so so and and the best part of that it is that when we did the symposiums in Charlotte at my campus we were limited to 150 tickets because that's how big our auditorium was. Now we have a, a virtually unlimited capacity, so we can have as many people as possible. Um, so we're looking to have you know about a thousand people attend. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and how about the the new book that you're coming out with? Well, that book is yeah that that's another spinoff of uh, Pizza Quest. Um, so you know we've we've gotten the podcast that's about to launch on on uh, Heritage Radio, but also. Um, because these interviews were so interesting and the people that I met, each one of them you know were, was creating a style or a particular type of pizza that was pretty ma- amazing I'd have to say they're all doing you know work at that memorable level um, I asked them I came up with an idea of asking them each to contribute one pizza, one not a recipe, but one of their pizzas to a book that I would write called Pizza Quest uh, with the subtitle being, my never-ending search for the perfect pizza continues, uh, in which I would take their pizza and do a homemaker's version of that—something that anybody could make in their own home oven, even if they don't have a wood-fired oven—they can make it in a regular oven—and um, it wouldn't it require the pizza makers to divulge any of their particular dough recipes or this or that, because I—that's what I can do. I can make—I can create doughs. I've done a number of pizza books in uh, I have a number of recipes that can be used for any of these styles of pizza that we're going to feature. And so we end up with 35 pizzas. I'll call them the hero pizzas or the the they're, they're going to be the, uh, uh, well, the, the analogy that I used for the, the pizza guys was that um, you guys are the Beatles and I'm the Beatles tribute band. And so I'm going to do a tribute version or a cover version of your pizzas uh, that anyone can make at home. And while it won't be exactly your pizza. It'll be based on your pizza. The photo in the book will be a photo of your pizza. That will be our target. That'll be the beauty shot or the hero. And uh, the goal will be for each person who, you know, who gets the book to be able to to attempt to make a pizza that good and that memorable following the basic, you know, easy to follow steps that I'll give them in the book. And so that book is, you know, been now written and now we're in editing. And I've been told by the publisher that it probably will come out by the end
1: of this year. Oh, that's exciting. Pretty quick turnaround time for a book. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, not yeah, counting maybe. The, the many years that it well, takes. I'll tell you, it takes a lot of work to, you know, to do
2: to get it just from the writing to the actual manifestation. But one thing that's saving us time is that each pizza maker is going to provide their own beauty shot. So they're all taking their own shots or having a photographer take their pizza. So I don't have to recreate 35 pizzas, you know, in a in a in a uh, uh, you know in a photographer's lab. Uh, they will make each – so that's going to save us a lot of time, uh, and I'm gathering those photos now uh, so that uh, when we show – if we showcase uh, a pizza from Tony Gemignani, for instance, who's a world champion pizza maker from San Francisco, um, Tony's also giving us the photo. He gave me the basic ingredients and and you know uh, uh, explained to me what the pizza is supposed to be like, and then I interpreted that, and I'm doing – I'm the house band. You know, so I'm doing the, the house band
1: version of that pizza. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, I wanted to do a little bit of fun rapid fire. Uh, so if you're ready. I, w- I will try to be. How about uh, which, which uh, bread style do you feel like best represents you and your personality? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier a bread that I developed called Struan, And struin is a, a Scottish term
2: that means it's the name of a clan but it actually means from the gaelic it means a convergence of streams it's a harvest bread and it has about 12 different ingredients in it and so it weaves together the the grains that are harvestable on on michaelmas which is september 29th. and and so unlike a french bread which is just four basic ingredients flour water salt and yeast this harvest bread is really a a, a convergence or a confluence bread of a lot of of a lot of influences and so for me that bread is not only not only is bread a general metaphor, but that particular bread is the metaphor of me because I kind of feel like I identify with the fact that my life has taken so many twists and turns and has so many you know influences and confluences
1: in it that uh, when you take a bite of of, uh, of that bread, you're taking a bite of my soul. And a, and a good multi grain bread uh, takes a while to get right. You got to you gotta practice it a few times. <laughs> yeah, but you I can have to say, when,
2: the thing that I love about this bread is it makes the best toast. If I were going back into the restaurant business, I would open a toast cafe
1: and I would build it around that particular loaf and I would make the toast out of that bread. Best sounds toast I've ever good. had. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. How about a, a great meal that you had that cost under five <laughs> bucks? <laughs> well, it's funny because, you know, there probably are many,
2: but. The one that that comes to mind immediately, uh, and it probably wouldn't be under 5 bucks now, but when I had it, when I was a kid, the meal that kind of was a a benchmark meal for me was when my dad would take me on Saturday afternoon to his favorite hot dog place in Philadelphia called Levis's. Levis's was the Nathans of Philadelphia. uh, And the hot dogs, when I was a kid, the hot dogs were 25 cents. And then it was a big big deal when when they changed it to 35 cents. And then I went off to college and came back, and when my, my dad took me back there, uh, by then the hot dogs had gone up to two dollars and thirty-five cents each. And uh, nowadays those hot dogs probably would go for about eight bucks. But um, you know, for for uh, under a buck, you could get two or three of killer hot dogs, great hot dogs, and with a, a great um, mustard and relish and uh, sauerkraut bar, and you could you know put anything you want on it. That meal, again, since the time I was about seven years old, um, is
1: indelibly imprinted. In my, in my hall of fame of taste memories, yeah. Well, so so how come nobody's done an amazing hot dog bun? It's a good question. Um, I mean, uh, hot dog buns are actually pretty amazing in their own right. It's
2: as fast and easy as they are because they're they're soft and they're sweet. And of course, it's just like a hoagie bun can't be quite that soft. A hot dog bun and burger buns are supposed to be soft. Um, uh, but I think maybe it's because the in, in, in with a hot dog. The, the star, it really is the hot dog itself. And the bun is the supporting, it's the carrier, it's the vehicle, the, the the delivery system. And so all it has to do is be a really good supporting player. I think if you try to do too much with the bread and try to draw attention from the hot dog, it's not fair to the hot dog, unless it's right. a crappy hot dog, you know, which is, <laughs> there are some of those out there too. Got
1: it, got it. I appreciate the distinction. Uh, Peter, <laughs> it's been such a pleasure to talk. Uh, congratulations on on your new show and the symposium and the book and everything else. Um, would you just run through some of those websites again? Where can our listeners uh, find you, purchase your books, uh, and attend the symposium? Yes. Well, the the website itself is one word
2: BreadSymposium.com. and if you, I'm going to give you, your your listeners a, um, a a discount code. And when you get to the, if you go through and you decide to get the ticket, and as you're checking out, when you get to the paywall, type in the word bread discount b r e a d bread discount one word all one word and it will give you a 15% discount so the tickets are 100 bucks for the whole like 6 month series but if you and the VIP tickets, which I think are worth getting, are 125, and that gets you into the after party of every presentation. There's going to be a 45 minute sort of after party with the presenter, where people can do a little bit more casual, uh, less formal, you know, interaction. Uh, and then, on, and then you get a 15 percent discount. So the VIP ticket comes in for you know close to you know, just over 100, dollars uh, and it will get you into everything. Uh, but, but go to the go to go to the site and it will guide you. There's a little sneak preview of, you know, a a video that we made that shows you how the site's going to work. There's a FAQ that tells you, you know, how to interact with it. And uh, I think, I think you're, you know, if you you decide to go forward with it,
1: you're going to, it's going to be an amazing experience. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. Um, As always, you can reach us, YFood, at uh, heritageradionetwork.org, at YFood Podcast on social media. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And you reach Valerie on Instagram, at Foodie in New York. Thanks to Armin Spengen, our amazing sound engineer. Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song. And most of all, Peter, thank you so much for joining me and and for sharing some of your wisdom and experience around, around bread making. Well, thank you, Ethan. It's been great being with you. Likewise, talk to you all next
0: week. Why food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.